Welcome back to the Messy Reformation. My name's Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Cronkey. He's a member at Pease CRC in Pease, Minnesota. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. But we realize that whenever Reformation happens in the history of the church, things get messy. And after this past synod, and looking forward to this next synod, things are really starting to get messy in the Christian Reformed Church. So we're taking the opportunity to have conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church to find out what's going on in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. If you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We're dropping episodes every single Sunday evening. We also want to say thank you to everyone who sponsored us on Patreon. We're slowly making our way to our modest goal of 20 sponsors at $5 a month. So if you appreciate what we're doing and want to help us continue to put out content, head on over to patreon.com slash themessyreformation. You can also support us for free by sharing our content. I'm a terrible self-marketer and everyone knows that now, so I need your help. If you know of anyone who would benefit from listening to this content, let them know about the Messy Reformation. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode, which is part one of our conversation with Curtis Malifsta. So, Curtis, why don't you kick us off, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your family, and uh, the church that you're at. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Curtis. I'm um, I'm a student at Calvin Seminary. Um, I'm married to my wife, Nicole. We've been married for just coming up on 12 years. We have five children. The Lord has blessed us with five wonderful children, um, ages six down to four months old. So we have a very busy household. And um, I'm currently not serving a church on a paycheck level. Um, I am a, what I would call a passionate parishioner at our local Christian Reformed congregation here in Salmon Arm, British Columbia. So we get the pleasure of just showing up to church every week and putting our butt in the pew. Amen. You know, that's probably something that a lot of pastors dream about being able to do, be a passionate parishioner, huh? Well, and we're we're taking advantage of it. Like even we were just realizing on the weekend, like we had a busy weekend of hospitality, people coming over, our kids with busy with playdates and whatnot. And like when I was a youth pastor at Willoughby Christian Reformed Church, it was like, you know, you build up to the weekends and Sundays were busy in the morning, youth group on Sunday nights. We like Saturdays were our only really day as a family. And now we're We've got Saturday and Sunday. We take full full advantage of the opportunity to visit with our our church family and not have to be worried about um, what's going on at the church. I don't have to get there early to help troubleshoot tech stuff or, you know, be going up and down from the front or whatnot. Um, And we know that it's a a temporary period. You know, I'm studying full time. At some point, we're going to be serving a church again and our Sundays are going to, you know, get ripped away from us on a personal Sabbath level and put back into the life of the church. And we're looking forward to that, but we're taking the, the, the time we have now. Yeah. Amen. Well, that's good. Use it, use it as much as you can, because uh, it's, it's a, yeah, it's just, it's a beautiful season. And I think there's a, there's obviously a beauty in pastoral ministry, right? Um, but, but yeah. your Sundays change a lot. And even, um, you know, we'll, t- we can talk about this more for you, but I remember like my Sundays were very different as a youth pastor than as a lead pastor too. Cause yeah, it, 
yeah. as a youth pastor, it was different than being the the passionate parishioner um, because you're still connected to the life of the church in a different way. Um, but then being a lead pastor is even different, even more different because then you're like, at least as a youth pastor, I got to show up and and hear God's word preached and, and that yeah. instead of me being the one having to get up and do that every Sunday. And uh, I've actually, I've really missed that. I was like, God, I, I love being the youth pastor where I could go and I could preach the word on, we did Wednesday evenings and, and do all of that, but then still come around on Sunday and have the word of God preached over me to each week. Yeah. And you, and you get the freedom of just being that, that, that connection. You can hang out in the lobby after the, you know, as church, as the service is starting and greet the the latecomers and say hi to people and connect with people where like, you know, the senior pastors like walks in and, you know, they like, they sit down with their family. I don't know what, what your rhythm is, but you know, our pastor's rhythm is always like, they're kind of just there and they go up and preach, they do their thing. And I was always like running around all over the place, managing all sorts of random little bits or even just connecting with people. And now I, I have the opportunity to be a guest preacher in some of the local congregations. And that's another whole style of like freedom where it's like, I just show up, you know, talk to the sound tech, get the belt pack. And then you just kind of like punk yourself down. There's no church relational anything. You just get to go up and preach. And that's, that's a blessing in and of itself yeah. as well. Yeah. So how long were you a, a youth pat? Was Willoughby your first call as a youth pastor? Um. Yeah. Like, yeah, mostly. So like I started out um, as a young man, um, and I, I, so I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, in Class Alberta North, and I was at Inglewood Christian Reformed Church there. And I was, I got involved in the youth ministry there. I felt a call into youth ministry, so I met with our youth pastor there, and we kind of started running things together. And he really um, invited me into the inner workings of the youth ministry and um, advocated for me on a leadership level to become, you know, a church intern. Um, and our the church council there, by God's wisdom, knew that they were building me up to send me out that the, all the money that they were going to pour into me, you know, to go to school and all these other things knew that they would likely never see it on their own local level, but it would benefit the church larger. Um, mm-hmm. So they, they gave me a pretty significant sum of money over some years to do some of my education at um, Princeton Theological Seminary. I did a certificate in youth and um, theology there. And, and then I was doing that like on a volunteer level at that church. So that was kind of, a first call in the sense I was pretty involved. I planned a lot of the events. So, you know, I did teaching and, you know, like led small group ministry for a decade there. Um, but then I was also working full time at an inner city gospel mission um, with homeless adults and homeless youth and running uh, like organizing an internship program for young adults from across the world would come in and be interns there. So like in some ways that period of my life, that was like 2011, 2012 to 2016 is kind of like, the first call. And then Willoughby was the first time I was a like paid vocational youth pastor where I didn't have any other things going on. Like all the work I did at the church was compensated, so to speak. No. Yeah. Very cool. Um, Curtis, I'm wondering, and I want to get into, to, uh, your life and ministry in the church, but I'm, I'm wondering about your time at Princeton theological seminary. Um, was that a very formative time for you? And did you find that, uh, that institution of, of value for you as far as your education goes? Like, yes, it was hugely formative. Cause I like, so I, 
I was doing some part-time Bible school at the local Pentecostal Bible college in Edmonton. Um, I was doing that like distance while I was working. Like we got like my wife and I, we got married when we were 20 years old. You know, we had, we had rent payments and we were saving up for mortgage and like all these things. My wife was going to school. I'm working like downtown Edmonton on like a meager salary at a nonprofit, like getting punched by homeless people. So like it was, you know, there was, yeah, it was really formative because it was kind of like the premier theological formation that I received mm-hmm. up until I started kind of like my MDiv journey recently. Um, because like Pentecostal Bible school was um like paled in comparison to like reformed catechesis. Like what I was taught growing up around my dinner table and like through youth group. And I wouldn't say I had like a very robust bust catechism teaching like we like when I was a kid at our church growing up like we went through youth pastors and youth leaders like it was really turbulent but I but you know I think the Lord has given me a, a, a deep sense of faith that I can't really explain um but when I and then so I went, when I went to Bible college it was like like this is all really you know I know all this kind of stuff it was, was what it kind of felt like and it was Pentecostal so there was always this like friction of like you know how how much do I push against the theology of what I'm being taught? Because there was like there was friction there. So, anyways, Princeton was very formative for me because a it was it like it's you know generically reformed being you know a Presbyterian PCUSA seminary, um, and at, when I started going there, it was it was I guess you could say it was more conservative than it is now. Like Princeton now is. Um, it, I, it's it's in a different place. The last really ten years have really shifted it. I went there in well, 2013, 2014, 2015. It was a 22 month program. I did. I had to be on campus three times. I went to two uh, of their forums on youth ministry, and then I went for a third like capstone retreat with just my own cohort of classmates. Um, and some of the relationships that you that we had in that in a cohort were the probably the most formative in the sense where you had people who, you know, were like me just coming up in youth ministry, wanting some more professional training. You had some people who had, you know, done their pre-stem track seminary, got ordained in their denomination, got called to be an associate pastor as their first church and got dumped the youth ministry on their plate. And they went, I didn't train to be a youth pastor. So they show up there. So you've got, you know, I was hanging out with people who had way more theological education than me, but had like, you know, years less youth ministry experience than me. So it was a really rich place to talk. Um, and that's where I got access to people like Andy Root and Kendra Creasy Dean and, you know, others. So I could sit at their feet and, you know, um, some of the more theological politics or ideology aside, like there's things that I don't agree with, with Andy Root, but I still tell every single youth pastor that he should, they should be reading every single book that Andy Root's ever written on youth ministry. And you should be listening to his podcast if you want to be doing youth ministry in today's world. So it was, it was massive. Like, you know, I'm I, like next week, I'm leading a book study on an Andy Root book for our local youth pastors in our classes. Um, and I, and I've been named the the Andy Root guy in our because <laughs> I'm always plugging his books. <laughs> so yeah, it was super formative. It was great. Um, and awesome. then I went back in 2019 for one more conference and that was really wonderful as well. Awesome. So, and so how did that, how did that shape the way then that you did youth ministry or what, I guess what aspects of Andy Root's books have really encouraged you or shaped the way you did youth ministry? Like on on one hand, you've got the philosophical and where like it really pushed me into into thinking that like programs and systems are only there 
to satisfy bulletin announcements and you know church website event listings and things like that um and they and they offer kind of like the forum in which discipleship and ministry actually happens in the in the same way that like your house is just the place in which hospitality happens but the hospitality is really offered on a personal level right mm-hmm. and if you've read faith formation in a secular age and he roots kind of his first book and his theories on ministry in a secular age he really hits that hard with paul and ananias um and i think that's really important so that really shifted my focus from planning events and retreats and mission trips and all these things to like intense um relationship and discipleship and like personal education where it's not like the teachings that, you know, I would do at youth group and and the curriculums we would choose were far less important than the kind of more biblical doctrinal theological conversations I would have with young people on a coffee table basis, right? In some ways they were just there to pique the interest and follow up with those conversations. I would tell my youth leaders that, you know, we come to youth group to do a Bible study and it's really important that everybody understands that because it frames the relationship um, of, of a youth pastor, a youth leader and a youth, but as a spiritual friendship that we're not here to be buddy, buddy, we're here to, you know, discuss the things of God with each other. But when they arrive at youth group, whether, whether we actually do a Bible study is secondary um, because sometimes kids come in with other things they want to talk about, or you want to, or sometimes it's just not going to work. You know, kids are just too wild. They had too much sugar at school. And so you just got to throw dodgeballs at each other and that's okay too. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's, you know, yeah, that's, that was kind of like the big shift that Princeton and Andy really pushed me towards was this, you know, kind of way more intentional relationship, um, part of youth ministry than just a program teaching kind of roteness. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of good stuff. I mean, Andy Root was coming in on this, um, what I was feeling back when I was in youth ministry as well, this, this kind of reformation of youth ministry really that's been happening kind of, uh, um, on the one hand, you know, I, I noticed a lot of people shifting from like a, a youth ministry that was focused just on games and activities and programs and stuff and shifting to a more discipleship model. Um, but then there's some people that that kind of lost some of the the goodness of just fellowship and and hanging out and being goofy together too. Like that that's part of just fellowship as well. And I know I, I felt that tension in Andy Root's books as well, trying to yeah. trying to juggle that tension of like just hanging like throwing dodgeballs at one another can be fellowship and and can be good, but as long as that's not the only thing you do. Yeah. Um. And and trying to um. And we we really did. Uh, we, it, it kind of shifted the way we did our youth ministry on Wednesday nights and all of our retreats as well, because we were, I mean, we were very heavily teaching oriented. Um, I think I've said this before, you know, we were teaching through on our, some of our retreats, we were teaching through Burkhoff systematic theology. Yeah. So we would teach heavy, but, but we also taught, I, I intentionally was teaching in a way that would raise questions that we could talk about later. Um, and build upon on a more relational way. And even in my preaching, I, I intentionally, and this would probably bother some people, but but I would intentionally not preach very heavy application. I would preach more bigger picture stuff. And then we would send the kids off to small groups. Yep. So then they could have the relational dive in yep. and talk application on a more personal level. And that seemed to really work well for us. Yeah, we got to clean up the messes you made from the public. That's right. It was great. <laughs> Well, I, I think it's like that's a good way to do it. Cause even like for me, there was a lot of sense where me being kind of like, I guess, up there or being that kind of figurehead of 
theological knowledge, kind of doing the teaching and the curriculum planning and stuff like that, you know, puts you in that place of spiritual authority so that when you meet with a student who's, you know, starting to date somebody in their in 12th grade and they feel like it's really serious, you have, you, you, they, they see, they perceive you as that person who can offer biblical insights into their um, little world. And that yeah. to me was like crucial because, you know, I think in today's, especially like the context in which I was doing ministry in the the greater Vancouver area is that like every single parent is working. Um, mm. You know, kids are busy. They're insane amount of sports and extracurriculars. And so they weren't always having the the deep conversations about these kind of aspects of their life. And I had, I, you know, I had the ability to have those conversations because that was, you know, thank the Lord, my job to be able to do yeah. that, which was wonderful because I would do that every day of my life. I didn't get paid for it anyways. I still yeah. do. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yeah, it was great. I I uh I still kind of look back. I I still try to keep my finger in the in the youth ministry world a little bit. I I get offered to speak at some youth conferences and youth retreats mm-hmm. and and uh when I can and and it's not taking me away from my church too much. Um I do that and I just I love being able to sit down and have those kind of conversations with teenagers and some of the best conversations I've had are just sitting at a coffee shop with some kids and just talking about life and having it very unstructured, unorganized, but just talking. Yeah. Yeah. So, so now you had mentioned that you're no longer in youth ministry. Um, and now you're kind of just focusing on like full-time studying for your MDiv, I'm assuming. Right. Yeah. 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 So I, in, in 2017, we moved from Edmonton, Alberta to Langley, British Columbia, which is kind of like the furthest out from Vancouver you can get to still be technically part of the grand grand, grand greater Vancouver area in the, in the southeastern part of BC or southwestern part of BC. Um, and so I was there, we were there from 2017 till this past October, we moved away. Um, so I did just about six years of full-time youth ministry there. And that was, um, in a lot of ways, it was a complete delight and absolutely wonderful um, insanely formative for me as a, you know, as a, as a young man, I was like, when I, I guess I was 26 when I started, I felt like a, like a tiny child, mm-hmm. um, especially in terms of like, you know, people are perceiving me as a professional youth worker. And I'm like, I, like, I don't have, I feel so far out of my depth. Um, and I came out the other side feeling far more confident in my abilities, which I think is a good thing. Yeah. Um, And so in a lot of ways, it was amazing. Like we got to be part of a church that, you know, loved us. Uh, we felt you know, pretty well supported by the congregation. Um, there was a bunch of families that were really involved in the youth ministry because they had lots of teenagers that, you know, really appreciated me and my my style of youth ministry and the way we ran things and the things we did together. And, you know, we, I still see the fruit of that today. Like I still, there's still a lot of relationships that have been maintained since we've left. You know, we've had, I've had some of my youth come up and stay with us in our in our new house where we live now for, um, you know, for a week. And that's, that's a whole other style of ministry when you get to have, you know, the teenager that you used to, you know, get frustrated with on mission trips, can I come, you know, eat at your breakfast and dinner table for three days. Yeah, um, or lead a podcast with you. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> As um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we were there for yeah six, six years and um, I got a pastor alongside Ed Gerber, who was, you know, a previous guest on this podcast. And that was wonderful, deep, deep friendship there. Um, and yeah, so then we left in the end of October. We uh, we had our fifth child, and I took paternity leave, and we uh, we moved away. And a lot of that has to do with, 
like in like the, the the simple answer is it was it was God's providence that it was time for us to leave. Um, even before, so like Will, Willoughby has gone through a little bit of some some turmoil. It's been tumultuous the last mm-hmm. you know many years. But you could if you add in the COVID stuff and then you add in the HSR stuff, it's been really tumultuous the last say three years. But the really the last ten years too. Before I got there, there was some conflict going on. Um, but yeah, so even before that kind of really started to manifest in a way that seemed like it was going to be time to leave, I had an inclination um, that we would be leaving at the end of 20, um, 2022, like about 12 or 14 months prior. I kind of said to my wife, I said, I think we're coming to a close here. Um, and there's and there's factors like like housing costs in where we were living were insane. You know, we had we had four kids. We were, you know, looking to have a fifth. You know, we knew that like we had to leave. We knew it the second we arrived at Willoughby that it was a temporary thing. Mm. Like we knew that it was going to be probably at least five years, maybe 10, but like there's no financial future for us in that area of the world. We can't buy a house, you know, a, a, a teardown house is a million dollars. Wow. So a million Canadian dollars. Yeah. So... <laughs> Um, so yeah, so we left and it was, it was a good thing to leave. The Lord has really, you know, carried us through. I now get to have the opportunity to study full time. I never thought I would be able to, when I first started going to seminary, it was like, I got to do this part time. I've got a family, you know, I've got two kids. I better get started. And now it's like, I've got five kids. I should just go full time. (laughs) So now I get a, yeah, we've got some people supporting us and the the, the local classes, but I get to study full time towards my MDiv and hopefully get that done soon sooner rather than later. Yeah. Well, that's a blessing. Uh, that was something I always dreamed of doing was being able to study, uh, just full time. And God has never, you know, I always felt like Calvin a little bit, not that I think I'm that big of a deal, but, but Calvin's whole life was like longing to go away and be a scholar and, and studying quiet. And God kept saying, sending him into churches. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I keep longing, like, man, if I could just have a few years to do some good study, um, and God's like, no, you're going to stay in ministry while you're studying and you're going to kind of do both at the same time. And I'm like, why? That's so, funny. Cause like my, my experience that. is the, is the opposite. Like I put off going to school. I never wanted to do like the formal theological education. I was just like, I'll just learn it as I go. You know, I just want to like be in the thick of church ministry. I love serving the church. Um, and then it was like, it was like, no, you need to go full time. And I'm like, this is like, I've, I've not been a full-time student since like 2008. Like this is a whole shift world shift for me. Um, and it's been like, yeah, you got to go full time. And it's been like, you know, it's been wonderful. I love the freedom that it affords me. I actually get to read all of my textbooks before I write a paper and not like, you know, quickly skim them and get the paper done because I've got like, you know, a sermon to write or a youth lesson to prep or a retreat to go on. (laughs) Yep. Yep. I know the feeling. And I've said to people too, even though as much as I longed to do my, my MDiv as a full-time student, um, I saw a massive blessing in also being able to do that at the same time as being in full-time ministry. Well, you get to so, implement every single thing you learn like yeah. that day. Like I, I yeah. remember like, even like when I was doing seminary while at Willoughby, like I would go, like I went to the local seminary at the, at the university campus that we were close by and like I could go to lecture and then, you know, meet for, meet with for coffee with a student on campus. Cause it was an undergraduate school as well. And we could talk about what we learned in our lectures earlier. Like it was like, so you could implement it all instantly, which yeah. is wonderful. It's good. And it also, one of the things that, um, cause you're, you're a distance student at Calvin, right? Is yeah. That what yeah. Doing? Hybrid, yeah. hybrid student. So yeah. mostly distance. Okay. So that, and that's what I was doing too. And it was interesting. I was the second class 
doing the distance ed program. And I noticed that a lot of the professors had to shift their understanding of how to teach us because most of us were doing in ministry at the same time. And so we would, um, on the one hand, they would be teaching on something and we would be able to like raise our hand and say, yeah, so you were teaching about this last month. We implemented it and uh, we're having issues with it. It didn't quite work the way, you know, what yeah, are yeah, we doing? Yeah. And they'd be like, oh, wait. Or we would raise our hand and be like, actually, what you're talking about, I was just ministering to a kid about this last week and here's how that went. And they would kind of look at you like, what? And so they just weren't used to having students in. It ended up like by the time I graduated, there had been a shift in how to how to do that education and it ended up being a really good thing. But there was this shift that they had to make in their brain, like, oh, wait, these people are in ministry right now. They're not just like young 20-year-old noobs who don't know anything. Yeah, well, I, but I think that's a big shift on the on the seminary landscape, like kind of on mass. Like the seminary that I was at at Act Seminaries, like most of their student body are vocational pastors, local to the area, or doing their online programs. Where like they're coming in from you know pastoral visits, pump jumping into campus for lecture and leaving again. So like everything is like integrated into their ministry. And I see that at Calvin too, moving into Calvin. I, and I feel like I'm a little bit of, of the odd duck in the distance program because I'm not serving a church. You know, the distance program is designed to be done while working full time. That's why the course load is the way it is and the length of time it is. And I'm adding, you know, I'm constantly like the last month I spent, I think I added, I added two. I was like, you're supposed to do three courses. Like, okay, I'll do one more. Okay, I'll do one more. Right. So I'm up to five. And they're like, oh, you really want to do five? And I'm like, I got like, this is my job now. But even I even see it in some of the assignments and lectures. It's like, yeah, I'm not like most of my classmates are serving full time somewhere and I'm not. Um, so I, but, but I guess I have, so I'm, I'm in a weird spot that way, but I see that like across seminaries where there's a lot, there, it seems to be that there's a lot of, um, a lot of the people going into the seminary education for the ministry are coming in through different, um, different paths than they went to high school. They did an undergraduate degree or a pre-sem degree and now they're doing seminary and they're going to be ordained when they're 26. Oh. It seems like people are kind of going through like, oh, I'm interested in church work. So I'll, you know, get a job as a youth pastor or worship pastor. And then so I'll start doing seminary and their ordinations are happening, you know, between in their thirties, in the thirties yeah. rather than their twenties. That does seem to be a pattern. And I have to say, at least in my context, um, that has been really good for me. Um, I'm, you know, I'm in more of a, you know, kind of rural Wisconsin, a pretty blue collar church. And uh, the people in my church really appreciate that I worked in a factory and I worked construction and I ran a yeah. business and I, and I did all of that before coming into my church. Cause they're like, Oh, you understand us. And, uh, I, there's this line that always jumps in my head. Um, so I, my brother-in-law is an engineer and he was a, like a big mechanical engineer or like engineering, um, high rises and stuff like that. And he's like, you know, they always say an engineer should spend three years at the dumb end of a shovel before they ever start being an engineer, just to understand how things work. And I'm like, I think there's truth in that with pastors too. Like pastors really, it is a good thing to spend four or five years just working a normal factory nine to five job before ever going into ministry, because it, it just kind of grounds you in the reality of, of your people. Yeah, so I have the 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 ability to do that to a degree now where I'm not looking for any church work aside from, you know, helping out with pulpit supply, but we live on a dairy farm. 
you know, it's my wife's uncle's dairy farm. So, you know, last week, Thursday, Friday, I was up at 5 a.m. in the in the barn milking, you know, because awesome. people, some people were away and they needed help. So I'm there to cut to cover. So I got to help out on the farm a little bit. And that's a, you know, it's it's fun to hang out with my cousins who are, you know, full time, you know, they live the dairy farm life. And, mm-hmm. you know, I ask, I ask them all sorts of questions that they, you know, I don't think I've ever thought about because I'm like, you know, in this context of like merging my theological education and like church ministry into, you know, this world of like rural life and farming and blue collar kind of area. So that's, it's been interesting. Yeah, it's a good thing. It's been huge. And I've just noticed a lot of the, um, in particular, um, the, the men of my church have really appreciated that, that I'm a kind of, that I've, that I've got this background and, uh, mm-hmm. I can relate to them on, on a different way. I've just noticed a, a big difference, um, in that ability. So I think it's probably a good thing that, that pastors are kind of living some life first and then going back in and going to school. And, uh, it's actually one of the reasons I went to Calvin. I felt that at Calvin, I had actually went, I'd looked at Southern, Baptist Theological Seminary, um, just because I've appreciated Al Mohler and a lot of that. And so I went there. But when I walked there, and this was a long time ago now, but, you know, 10 years ago, when I was walking around Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, I'm like, oh, man, everybody at this school seems like a little 20 year old kid who just came out of college and, and in seminary. And I'm like, man, I'm going to ship my whole family down here. I think I'm going to be I'm just not going to connect. And then I went into Calvin and I'm like, oh man, here's a bunch more people who've got some life experience behind them going to seminary. Um, and I, and I really felt like, uh, that was a good thing. It was a good thing for me. And I think it'll be a good thing, uh, for the Christian reformed church as well. I think so. Yeah. Think so, Well, I want to, I want to dive in and I don't want to poke too much, but, but like you and I have had, um, a similar kind of journey, I suppose, as far as being youth pastors or youth directors, whatever you want to call us, um, in, in a church with a little uh, turmoil. Um, I was in a church that was tumultuous as a youth pastor, and that is a whole different experience um, yeah. because you're like, you're, you're, you're responsible in the midst of some of that, but you're also like one step removed from actually having any authority to do anything about it. And uh, <laughs> you're going to make a lot of mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's such a, it's, it was such a tough place for me to be. And, um, and I know for you as well, but, but, and now that I want to dive into all of that, because I know, you know, public and, and we don't want to like air churches garbage, but, but one of the things that you had said was, you know, some of the, the tension in your church revolved around, uh, the human sexuality report. And, uh, I think it might be helpful to talk about a little bit of that, not necessarily the, the nitty gritty details of your church, but, you know, we're in a denomination that's, that's divided over this issue. And, uh, and there are some people, you know, really pushing, hoping that we can have a, a third way where we can just kind of agree to disagree in the Christian Reformed Church and just focus on, you know, there's a, uh, Willie and I talked about this in our podcast last week that, you know, there's a group that just came out, they're called Better Together, A Third Way, and they're saying, let's just yeah. unite let's just unite around mission and our baptismal identity. And uh, I I guess I'd love to hear your insights on being part of a church that was maybe trying to unite around those things, but having disagreements around human sexuality and and how that played out. Yeah. So like, that's really the crux of it is. And and I think like, so at Willoughby, there was, there was a lot of division um, along kind of, 
your modern political lines, your modern kind of theological convictions. Um, and in some ways, like we were still very much like Christian reformed, like we had a lot of unity. Um, we were a pretty traditional church when it came to worship and our architecture and things like that, but it was pretty progressive in some of the ways in which we would live out some of that ministry. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, it was, it was really messy because you have, what what ended up happening really was you ended up having a church of two or three congregations, right? And and as as time went on, those groups became more and more polarized, right? And and my my um, interpretation of the situation was that the human sexuality report or human sexuality, I guess more specifically, was kind of like the dividing line, and everything kind of flowed out of that. So you have other Others say, like, like one issue that I think is a really easy example is, like, you know, Canada, the churches in Canada have a long history, especially our church at Willoughby had a long history of welcoming refugees into the country and sponsoring refugees from different parts of the world. And that was a really passionate part of our ministry. There was a ton of money that flow, flowed through our church for that. And we had dedicated people who, you know, learned the systems of the immigration and refugee systems to get people in here and support them, care for them, get them integrated into community, make sure they had a place to live, all the stuff. But the people that did that were on the left-leaning side of the aisle. And while a lot of people generally supported the work of refugee resettlement, um, it's a bit more of a left-leaning type of work, kind of culturally. Um, and so those types of people would attend there. So I had people who were a bit more on the conservative end of the spectrum, not wanting to really, as much as they might, as much as they would, you know, throw their a few dollars in the collection when it would come through on on those on Refugee Sunday or what have you. They didn't want to get involved with that group of people because it's like I don't want to be associated with that kind of that congregation within our church because they're the ones who are pushing certain agendas, causing problems. They're the ones who are nitpicking our pastor's sermons. They're the ones who are, you know, trying to politic and make sure they've always got one of their little, one of their friends on the council table, like those sorts of things. Right. And now, you know, everybody is guilty of kind of all of those things across the political spectrum. I don't want to pretend that like, you know, one certain ideological faction is more, you know, strategic than the other if to put it th- to put it that way but it, it just became this growing divide that happened that was that was already there before i got there um and and it and it just slowly burned and bubbled until you know it blew up and in the space of six months they lost their senior pastor and their youth pastor mm-hmm. basically because of the same issues yeah right cool. and and with that like you know 30, 40%, maybe more of their membership. Mm. Yeah, like serious. And 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 my role in, as youth minister was like, I have my convictions, you know, yeah. of what the Bible teaches about sexuality. The families that had their kids at youth ministry, like at the youth ministry programs were, you know, generally conservative people. Like, you know, there's a reason they're at a confessional reform church, you know, and not at the United Church down the street. Um so like it, it almost felt like I had my own little world of church ministry and then another demographic had their own other world of church ministry. And like the two didn't meet yep. and that, and like, that's just not healthy. Like no matter which way you look at it, because like they're united around some things, we're united around other things and we're pretending to be united around our confessions. But if you really, if you want to dig into what does the Bible say about it, we just don't talk about it. Yeah. Right. And 
bless his heart, Ed tried to, like he preached sermon series on this, right? And, and you know, very pastorally tried to work people through the biblical text on what, it, like, you know, what is God's design for our bodies, right? Why do our bodies, our physical bodies matter and how we treat them and what we do with them? Um, and it just like, it just, like, I guess eventually it didn't really work. It worked for some people, but not for the church on the whole. That's all we have for this week. Stay tuned next week for part two of our conversation with Curtis Malifsta. But until then, don't forget this is Christ Church, and he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock. So keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Preach the word in season and out of season. And keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation. <laughs>